Today's episode of Socially Democratic is brought to you by Dunstreet. Dunstreet is a modern campaign agency dedicated to using data-driven grassroots organising to build winning campaigns and make the world a better place. Whether you're in business, issue-based campaigns or simply an organisation driving change in your community, Dunstreet develops strategies that overcome those challenges by connecting people that share the same values and organising them from the ground up. To find out how Dunstreet can partner with you, you should hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. Here we go again. It is the next instalment of our series unpacking the Democratic primary over in the United States. The New Hampshire primary was held this Tuesday, Wednesday, Melbourne time, Sydney time, Brisbane time. Uh, and we've got Sam Schneiderman back on again this week to break down all of the results from the New Hampshire primary. Who were the winners? Who were the losers? Who we're saying goodbye to, the Yang gang, amongst many, and also start to look towards what we think is going to happen in the Nevada caucus and the South Carolina primary. So that is today's episode. And don't forget that you can subscribe to Socially Democratic on your favourite podcast app and be sure that you keep up today with all of the goings on on Social Democratic by following the Dunn Street social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Let's get to this week's episode. Okay, we're taping this one on a hot, sticky Friday afternoon in downtown Melbourne. And as promised from last week's Iowa caucus breakdown we are going to break down the new hampshire primaries that happened on tuesday or wednesday melbourne time and back on the line but this time not from brooklyn new york i think he's in california sam schneidman welcome back to socially democratic it's good to be back i can't believe they've let me back for what is this the third time and and back to back no less yeah well now now surely the uh, the luck is going to wear off (laughs) Well, uh, people like you, mate. That's all I can say. I'm getting great feedback from uh, the podcast. They're saying, this Sam guy, who is he? He's an oracle. He's a, he's, a, he's a fountain of knowledge. Should we throw this up on Patreon? What is that? <laughs> Patreon uh, is basically a community of creators where you can sort of like build your community online and raise money from the people who like, uh, from your patrons, basically. Ah, Right, okay. That sounds like a scam to me. Um, Let's talk about... This is socially democratic, it's free. Yeah, well, right, okay. Uh, Let's talk about New Hampshire. Um, We made bold predictions. Well, actually, I found that you struggled to make predictions. I couldn't uh, seem to... uh, pin you to a prediction at the end of last week's podcast, but you roughly said that you thought... Smart guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and it's the thing about these, uh, this Democratic primary. It actually is hard to make judgment calls about where it's going, and I think that what we'll, when we'll talk about it a bit today, uh, there were surprises in the results for New Hampshire uh, this week, and all I want to start off with saying is, Amy, 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 Amy. Uh, Amy Klobuchar, what a stunning result for her. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. So uh, it was absolutely unexpected that she would 
not just finished third, but um, I think she finished with twenty around twenty percent of the vote, uh, which is pretty is a stout third place finish. Uh, and is only a couple percentage points uh, and a few thousand votes behind both Keith Buttigieg and um, Bernie Sanders. Now, what's interesting um, is that what does this tell us? It tells us a that um, there is a very fractured field in the Demo- of candidates in the Democratic race. Uh, Bernie clearly uh, has locked up sort of the progressive wing. Uh, and that's evident in Elizabeth Warren's fade. And then um, people can't seem to make up their minds about sort of like the more moderate standard bearer. You know, Pete has a lot of money uh, in his campaign. It's well organized. Um, and he's a very competent candidate. And so I think the fact that he has finished strongly in these opening two states uh, has worked to his advantage, but no, you know, no one, Amy does not have, while she may be a competent candidate, she does not have the money or strong organization that someone like Pete has. So to see her, uh, sort of come, uh, out of nowhere like that, uh, was interesting. And I think, uh, if I were in Pete's campaign, I'd be, um, Curious about what that potentially says about voters' receptiveness to my perceived lack of experience. Um, you know, people weren't interested in Biden, not Elizabeth Warren, so they went with you know the next sort of like viable uh, moderate candidate, and that was uh, that was Amy. Let's uh, let's good uh, opening salvo there, Sam. Well done. Let's uh, overview the results uh, for the viewers at home that didn't uh, pay attention this week. So the final results were uh, Sanders, comma Bernie picked up twenty five point seven percent of the vote, and that uh, saw him allocated nine pledged delegates. Uh, Pete Buttigieg picked up twenty four point four percent of the vote, and he too was allocated nine pledged delegates. Uh, Amy Klobuchar uh, was allocated, as you said, you're, just, you're basically bang on 19.8, so just under 20%. Uh, she was allocated six pledge delegates. Uh, Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts, was uh, she uh, got 9.2% of the vote and uh, was awarded zero pledge delegates. Joe Biden picked up 8.4% of the vote, was awarded zero pledge delegates. So the pledge delegates total thus far after both Iowa and New Hampshire sees uh, Pete Buttigieg lead with 22 pledge delegates, uh, Bernie Sanders with 21 pledge delegates, Elizabeth Warren with eight, Amy Klobuchar now with seven, and Joe Biden with six. Would, uh, with the upcoming... uh, Nevada caucus on Saturday the 22nd. There's 36 pledge delegates up for grabs there. And the following Saturday on the 29th of February in South Carolina, there's 54. We'll talk about those two states later in the podcast. But right off the bat, winners, losers, and uh, gone but not forgotten. The winners you'd put in the category, Bernie, Pete, and uh, Amy? Certainly Bernie and Pete. Amy, uh, I think, is uh, is definitely a winner of the New Hampshire primary. I think... One of the things um, that you have to think about, though, is uh, does she have sort of the staying power that it seems that 
Pete and uh, well, definitely Bernie have. Um, you know, is this sort of, is this performance an outlier for Amy Klobuchar? Yeah, that's true. Um, I think this is. Uh, you know, history has shown us that New Hampshire can uh, give life to a campaign and can give momentum to a candidate's um, campaign going forward. Uh, We talked about last week about Bill Clinton being the greatest third place ever in the history of modern politics when he came third and he was a comeback kid. Um, Well, um, so yes, that's broadly true. However, it's into the weeds of that myth. Um, With regard to uh, Bill Clinton's third place finish in 1992, um, he did not, no no other candidate really competed in the Iowa caucus that year because uh, the the home state senator, Tom Harkin, was running for president and sort of cleaned up. So everyone else uh, focused on uh, Iowa or excuse me, focused on New Hampshire, and Bill Clinton had been steadily rising for weeks uh, in, the, in the polls. So clearly had momentum building into that third-place finish and was able to go on from there. Uh, no other candidate, I think, in the last 40 or 50 years has ever become the nominee without winning one of the first two states besides Bill Clinton. So um, while it can absolutely... Um, contribute momentum it is certainly uh an important state to uh to clinching the nomination and being able to win it but an incredible result for klobuchar given that um i you know yeah and i don't i don't deny that however i'm just saying you know it remains to be seen whether uh we're is this an apples and oranges comparison or are you know is she gonna be living a similar fairy tale i personally don't believe that she will be uh, for a, a few reasons that we may get into later um, after the commercial break. <laughs> got to thank our sponsors. Got to sell some mattresses and underwear. Uh, but yeah, I uh, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how this how this shakes out. The uh, going into the New Hampshire primary, like I did a, a, a poll, um, which a lot of pundits look to. I'm, uh, I'm told, uh, on the Dunn Street Instagram story where I asked people to uh, nominate who they thought was going to win the New Hampshire primary. Uh, overwhelming. And I only had four spots to fill. So I wrote uh, Bernie, Pete, Joe and uh, Warren. Uh, I didn't even bother putting Amy Klobuchar up there. Um, overwhelmingly, everyone thought that uh, Bernie was going to win. And obviously he did. I I think it's incredible, though, that no one even assumed that Amy was going to uh, do well in this particular poll. Saturday Night Live were making jokes. The the character that plays Amy Klobuchar on on, on SNL even said, you know, in the the debate um, piss take at the opening opening, uh, monologue for the show said, why am I not getting recognised? Which is a fair point for for the comedian to raise about Amy Klobuchar. But... It seemed to me in the reports that I read that over the week leading into New Hampshire, there was small signs of momentum that were gathering for her campaign. It wasn't trickles of volunteers that were going into her campaign field office to volunteer. Um, There were hundreds of people coming in um, and there was a quiet confidence that she was going to do reasonably well in this this, um, primary. What's your thoughts on that? 
Well, I think, again, it speaks to the, uh, so I, I think one of the themes that I've been harping on in our, our conversations is the importance of momentum in uh, presidential primaries. And um, one of the ways that a candidate can capture momentum is by performing really, really well in televised debates. Now, uh, as Biden has sort of imploded, as has Warren, uh, there has that's created this opportunity for uh, an alternative candidate. And um, Amy really stood out in her performances within the New Hampshire debate. I think the eccentricities of the New Hampshire electorate really sort of catered to a candidate of uh, Amy's um, style and sort of policy outlook. And, um, I think she was able to harness that momentum into being a viable third place contender in that particular primary. Again, personally, I'm skeptical as to whether or not this is going to materialize into something that she's able to capitalize on long term and is able to uh, to make a serious run at the nomination. And why is that? Where does that skepticism come from? It comes from a couple of places. I mean, number one. Um, one of the advantages of having momentum, uh, optically at least, in a presidential primary is that it allows you to fundraise. And a lot of money has been going to candidates other than Amy Klobuchar, and they've built really strong operations in, uh, in you know the early states. I don't know what her fundraising totals have been since uh, New Hampshire. However, she's starting quite far behind uh, the eight ball uh, compared to other candidates. So Rick, she's going to have a tough time making up that that sort of um, infrastructure gap, if you if you had to coin a term. Uh, I've, the second I've read, reason, Sam, I've read is, under I've read that it's under she's collected around about nine hundred thousand in uh, the last three or four days through small do- nine hundred thousand. Do- yeah, nine hundred thousand dollars dollars through small online donations. So I mean, like, let's just be real, right? That's not even, it's not even, it's like not even one commercial in a single state, you know. That so she's she's fighting against candidates who have t- over twenty million dollars cash on hand, Bernie and Pete, right? So uh, she's gonna have a hard time breaking through the media environment, and then I think this is actually one of the most interesting. Uh, so she's got, she's, this is one of the most interesting um, aspects of the upcoming races is we're about to find out what a billionaire's money can do in a presidential primary in a way we've never seen before. Mm-hmm. This is a totally new dynamic within American politics. Not to say that we haven't had billionaires running before. However, uh, we haven't had so much personal wealth directed into a a campaign. And while we may have had billionaires running before, Michael Bloomberg is worth $60 billion nearly. So he's not just a billionaire. He has, he's one of the richest people on the planet. Uh, And we're going to find out just how much that's worth. So Amy has a tough time competing um, from like, a mechanical standpoint, does she have sort of the campaign infrastructure that's required to make a serious deep run for the nomination? And then she's competing 
in a uh, in a really uh, weird dynamic of um, you know tons of capital coming into the process from a couple of billionaires, basically. A lot of exit polls were suggesting that Klobuchar did uh, reasonably well with what they term as uh, college-educated white women uh, that had originally parked their votes in the polling anyway with Elizabeth Warren. Um, And a lot of those, uh, that voting block was moving across to Amy in the lead-up to the voting on the Tuesday for New Hampshire and then obviously the results um, show that she obviously had a, uh, you know, she had a great result and Warren, on the other hand, you know, she in the end turned in nine, just, just over 9% in the final results. Um, let's, I want to quickly turn to Warren. Is that it for Elizabeth Warren? Uh, no. However, uh, you know, she, she's, on, she's on the ropes, right? So she's got to um, she's got to prove uh, in either New- Nevada or uh, South Carolina that she's uh, that she can win a race. Like she's got to win. The other thing is that she's really got to um, show that she has a vision that is different from someone like Bernie or you know or one of the other mod she's got to pick off support from Bernie and some of the moderate candidates. And she's trying this new identity of, and I have a unifier within the party, but if we're going to be honest, the way that this primary is, is shaping up, um, this is going to be sort of a last man standing primary, you know, the democratic oh. party voters aren't looking to be unified, right? It's, either going to be a moderate candidate or it's going to be a progressive candidate, but it's not going to be sort of this like aspirational blend of the two. And it just remains to be seen, uh, which sort of, um, power structure is going to win out within the party. Sticking with the losers, Joe Biden didn't even stick around for the results on election. I jumped on a plane and flew down to South Carolina Um, Yeah. We should jump on a plane and fly out of the race. We, uh, we talked about, uh, this last week because um, the polls were suggesting that it wasn't going to be a great result for him anyway. Probably worse than he thought, once thought, going into that week after Iowa. Um, is I mean, he's still got South Carolina to come, but it's the way that he's almost framing uh, his election strategy, uh, it's, it's cringeworthy to the degree in which he's basically saying, African-Americans in South Carolina, I really need you to vote for me. To the point now, I feel that they would be going, dude, don't take our vote for granted. Just, you know, it's, it's, a, bit, it's a bit crass. I don't know what's your thoughts on that. Well, I think actually this plays to a larger story, and that's um, the place of the Democratic Party or the place of, you know, the African-American vote within the overall Democratic Party. I think one of the things that's actually rather shrewd that Donald Trump is doing is attempting to undermine the um, sort of affinity of black voters for the Democratic Party, right? And you see him doing it in the most crass sort of ways, but it's, you know, working with Kim Kardashian on criminal justice reform, 
continually talking about how African-American unemployment unemployment is the lowest it's ever been. Uh, Getting involved in the ASAP Rocky debacle in Sweden, right? So he's latching onto these like high profile things to distract from his rampant corruption, but, uh, you know, and also to peel support away from a traditionally strong democratic voting bloc. I think it's not a bad strategy. And when you counter that against not just Joe Biden's pitiful attempts to bail out his campaign by calling on old favors of and, and treating a like race of people as a monolithic voting block. And when you contrast what Trump is doing with what Biden is doing, in addition to a lot of the other stuff that's coming out about can like Michael Bloomberg and what he said about stop and frisk, the Democrats are actually um, sort of not necessarily in control of that narrative. So yes, what Joe Biden is doing is crass. I think um, Joe Biden is actually yesterday's news and uh, has no viable path to the presidency. And the real story when it comes to African-American voters is how um, at risk uh, the Democrats are uh, when it comes to facing off against Donald Trump in that respect. And if that is the case, then Joe Biden has to look back on his uh, presidential primary career uh, and consider why did I bother doing that at all? This is his third time, I think, that he's entered the primary race seeking the Democratic fourth, nomination. Fourth, yeah. and yeah, third or fourth, never won a primary. Well, hey, I mean, look, uh, he's he's a talented politician, right? He did was very distinguished as a senator. Obviously, a lot of people like him and love him. Um, he uh, was considered uh, the front runner in the 1998, or a front runner in the 1988 primary, and got tripped up in a plagiarism scandal. Which, like, if we could just take a step back and think about how our appetite for scandal has greatly expanded <laughs> since then. Yeah, <laughs> you know, in 2008, he gave it a shot, ran, some, you know, up against. Uh, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton wasn't going to get through that. Uh, this time, I think, you know what, uh, it was a mistake for him to run in the first place. Uh, but that's not to say that his um, political career, in no way was him running for president ever a failure. Like he ended up as vice president of the United States. Yeah. Would he have been vice president had he not been, had he not been a candidate in 2008? Hard to say. Um, but you know, I think just because you try many, many times, um, you know, that's, that's not so, it's not how failure, uh, is not, is not as simple as that when it comes to presidential politics. But I think his candidacy to some degree was selfish in, from a, for those of you that would support a centrist or you know moderate center left democratic nominee uh at him adding to that field to join people like Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, Pete Buttigieg, 
Amy Klobuchar and whoever else. It just, it took so much oxygen from those types of candidates. And I think that... Yeah, And sure. the, the person that's benefiting the most here is Bernie Sanders. Uh, he, the only person he has to I worry about say. is Elizabeth Warren. And she's quite clearly str- has struggled in these last two polls uh, and may not make it to Super Tuesday. And if that's the case, then it's plain sailing for Bernie unless the, the, the moderate candidates can work out amongst themselves. Well, I don't know that it is plain sailing for Bernie. Uh, Go on. We can get into that. But, but yeah, I mean, look, Joe Biden's yesterday's news. And, um, and there's plenty more compelling candidates and storylines out there. Well, let's talk about Bernie. Obviously, this was um, a great result for him. He won the primary. Um, you know, um, you can, the, the positive spins for it. He won the primary. He finished uh, equal first, I guess, in the, in the Iowa caucus. He's looking strong in the next two polls. Um, and he's now the front runner. So, you know, Mozeltov to him for that. Um, the other side of it is that he polled considerably lower than what he did in 2016, 20, uh, I think Sanders beat Clinton by roughly 22 points in 2016. He got 50% fewer votes uh, this week than he did back then in 2016, although it wasn't as crowded a field this time. Um, and he is, there's an argument there that he is not expanding because one of his pitches to the Democratic base is, vote for me, I will bring in more people to vote for, the, for, the, for me as a Democratic nom- nominee up against Donald Trump. But there is some evidence to suggest that is not happening right now in these first two uh, polls. What are your, what's your take on Bernie's position right now in this, in this race? I mean, I think uh, that is absolutely true. You know, Bernie Sanders is the front runner for the nomination. Um, however, he has some real uh, risks to his candidacy um, developing. Uh, and that is uh, principally against uh, whether or not he's been able to sort of deliver on what he's saying in the sense that he's able to expand the electorate. Any Democrat who's going to win any election ever, doesn't matter if it's city council, doesn't matter if it's Congress, governor, whatever, even definitely president. The only way a Democrat wins is by expanding the electorate. And what that means is going out, registering new voters and getting people who are registered to vote who have either never voted before or consistently only vote for the other party to come in and vote for the Democrat. Uh, Now, has Bernie been able to deliver on that uh, to the extent that, A, uh, he says he can, and B, is required to beat Donald Trump? It's very much um, to be determined. Uh, so that if I were in his campaign, that'd be definitely something that would be concerning to me. Now, uh, one thing that is interesting is that he is polling way higher than sort of like anybody else in Nevada and South, certainly Nevada, uh, and South Carolina. And so much, again, just to come back to the momentum factor, uh, you know, if he can go into Nevada and South Carolina and have some sort of convincing victories there uh, and the underlying fundamentals around turnout look good um, and his margin of victory looks good. Uh, in, a, in other words, there aren't, there, you know, no other 
uh, candidate is within sort of like five points of him, I think then he can sort of like really be the solidified front runner. However, uh, while he may be the front runner presently, he's not unbeatable. Interesting that right now he is behind. I oh know it's only two. Um, we only had two um, elections thus far, but he's you know he's one pledge delegate behind uh, Pete Buttigieg, but it's still seen yeah. as the front runner. Um, I, I rec- well, I think that that goes into like sort of the momentum thing, right? You know, he's seen as the front runner because, you know, on paper, he's sort of won these first the, Iowa and New Hampshire. However, you know, it's not, it's not the way we um, choose our presidential nominee mm-hmm. in this country. It does come down to whether or not you get the required amount of delegates. And so while he may be the front runner and have the momentum behind him, uh, uh, that's you know he's very much you know it's election by election for him. David Plouffe, uh, who was Obama's campaign manager in 2008 and 2012, going through the primaries against Hillary Clinton in 2008, was at pains to try and tell the media and those who were reporting on the election that, particularly after Super Tuesday, because Hillary won a lot of those big states, um, won the primaries. But when they were distributing the delegates, Obama was either uh, competitive in the big states like California and New York and, and Michigan, but in, uh, in the smaller states, he was winning those smaller states and cleaning up in the delegates. Uh, and after Super Tuesday, he really needed to sit down with the media and say, hey, you stop looking at who's winning each race. Start to look at the actual pledged delegates who have been allocated to the two candidates. Obama is now over 120 pledged delegates ahead. He is actually the front runner. We are the ones who are setting the agenda in this campaign and not Hillary Clinton. Can you start to report that as opposed to thinking that Hillary is the person who's supposed to win this nomination? Now, I know it's early. We've only had two polls and there's only a handful of pledged delegates have been allocated. But it'll be interesting for folks to pay attention to that count um, after Nevada next Saturday and then South Carolina um, the, the week after that because by that stage there will have been uh, close to... 90 plus delegates allocated. Then we get to Super Tuesday, which I think there's, I mean, California's like 470 or something like that. So uh, a lot of pledge delegates to get allocated. It'll be interesting to see uh, the depth of all of these campaigns and how they do across um, these big states and these small states. And we'll talk more about Super Tuesday when we get to it. But uh, in particular, Nevada and South Carolina, I'm interested to see um, even if uh, Mayor Pete or Amy or whoever... Uh, loses to uh, to uh, Bernie Sanders, the pledge count of delegates for me is something that I'm going to be keeping an eye on because if they're within five or six pledge delegates in each of those when they're allocated, they're still very much in the race. The only concern I have then is that both uh, um, Amy and Pete are splitting these when they really should be just going to one centrist can- candidate to be competitive against against Bernie. But that's you know that's by the by. What are your thoughts on that pledge delegate count stuff? I mean. Yeah, you, you sort of you sort of hit hit it with the importance of it, right? You know, it is, um, you know, it's it's not just about like winning straight up or down, right? It's about being strategic about knowing the rules of this sort of arcane, convoluted process 
and making sure that you uh, come out ahead. So I think actually, you know, people talk about Bernie being the front runner, but if you ask me, the uh, the shape that Pete is in when it comes to pledged delegates is pretty significant. Um, and I'm especially going to be looking at his performance in South Carolina uh, to determine whether or not uh, he is a you know viable. Uh, I mean, he's a viable candidate and is going to be in the race for a while, but we'll find out just how serious he is after a state like South Carolina, which has uh, a large African-American voting population where he has notoriously had problems connecting. Uh, and uh, he's pulling at like 5% within the state. Uh, we're going to find out how much a good campaign infrastructure uh, like a ground game and um, ads can help him. So I'd be looking especially at South Carolina for Mayor Pete um, when it comes to like the pledge delegate stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Looking at the, the returns for uh, New Hampshire, Bernie did uh, considerably well in the precincts that were all the major towns and cities. So Manchester, Nashua, uh, Dover... Um, I'm trying to think, uh, a couple of other towns um, that uh, he he polled well, whereas once again, kind of similar to Iowa, uh, Pete Buttigieg was strong in a couple of those towns, notably Hanover, which is um, the home of the Dartmouth University, one of those Ivy League ones, uh, plus a lot of those regional areas and those uh, suburban those 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 suburbs that are in the southern part of New Hampshire that actually border with the state of Massachusetts and the town of Worcester, um, which are sort of satellite suburbs of that Worcester um, area. Mayor Pete did incredibly well there as well. Um, So that's middle-class America that was turning out and voting for him there. Can we read to him? And notwithstanding the points you just made for about the, 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 the demographics of New Hampshire are fundamentally different to the next two races in Nevada and South Carolina, but can we read much into where Bernie is getting his votes from and where Mayor Pete is getting his votes from in terms of uh, expected outcomes in the next two polls? Well, I think what's more, like, what's more significant in the geographical distribution of votes is sort of the class breakdown and ideological breakdown of the votes. So the groups that Sanders won, uh, among very liberal voters, he won 50% of the vote. Among voters under 45, he won 43% of the vote. And what we call change voters, voters who said they were just looking for change, he won 37%. Now, the voters who had incomes of less than $50,000 a year uh, was 36%. If you... um, Contrast this with Pete. Uh, he won uh, voters who have incomes over a hundred thousand dollars by with thirty three percent of the vote. He won late deciders with thirty percent of the vote. That's really critical. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about Amy's surge in performance. Actually, Pete did really well with people coming down to the wire. Now, it's often these voters who make up their minds within the last few days who determine the margins of victory or loss within a campaign. And 
among voters who uh, were be defined as foreign policy voters. He won with 29%. We talked about change voters with Bernie Sanders and the way that he won those. Uh, the voters who identified themselves as electability voters, voters for whom any electability was the biggest concern, sort of like they're looking for the person who they think has the best shot to beat Donald Trump. Pete won those with 28%. So what we're seeing um, happen here is a sort of head and, heart, and the heart battle uh, for the, uh, the nomination here within the Democratic Party. Let's stick with the theme of uh, turnout. Um, I sent your texts uh, the evening of uh, New Hampshire, and I said that the early figures had suggested that uh, there was a higher turnout than in 2016, and on par, but in the end it was higher than 2008, um, which uh, on the face of it, that's fantastic. Um, we talked about that last week. Um, but there's been some more sobering analysis of that now and they've actually factored in that the, the voting population has, has increased in the state of New Hampshire since 2016 and indeed certainly has since 2008. Um, and that really... Oh, the, uh, the old... Uh the old uh, tra- trap of absolute numbers versus percentages, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and that really these numbers are on par essentially with 2016. And we've really, we were super worried after what happened in Iowa about what did that, what did that tell us about what it would look like in the presidency or in the, in the general for democratic turnout um, what do you take from? Are you, do you feel positive about these turnout numbers in New Hampshire, or are you just kind of meh? Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of meh on it. Um, I think one thing that's kind of interesting within American politics right now is that we are sort of going through a bit of a generational shift in and voting population, we're getting more and more voters, right? Uh, who are more and more people who are eligible to vote. It's skewing younger. Um, and who votes in a primary? It's the people who sort of like most identify with a candidate or a party. Now, I think what you're seeing is less people are a identifying with a, the democratic party and are less motivated to, go out and participate in the exercise of choosing who the Democratic nominee is going to be. And then I think what you're also seeing is that uh, people haven't really coalesced around one or two or three candidates. There's so many options as if it's to be bewildering to a lot of voters. And then I'm sort of thinking about what's the media environment been for the past few years? We talk a little bit about 2008. Uh, People were really fired up to vote in that election because 2006 was arguably the worst year of the Iraq war. It was when it was peaking and people really wanted to change. We were going through an economic crisis. There were a lot of these externalities that were motivating people to go out and vote. And you layer on top of that this enticing opportunity to vote for a once in a lifetime candidate in either Barack Obama, an African 
serious African-American contender or Hillary Clinton, a serious female contender for the nominee. Now, those same externalities aren't really at play in 2016. So I think it's a mis- or excuse me, are, are at play in 2020. So I think it's a bit of a uh, mistake to sort of compare the two uh, cycles as, you know, as the same thing. The other thing that I would add on to that is, you know, I'm just going to throw this out there. People are fucking worn out by the last four to eight years of American politics, and people just don't want to deal with it until they maybe have to. Who knows if that if there's any sort of statistical significance there, but, you know, that's one thing I'd be thinking about. Now, one of the great things about Australia is that you make it very easy to vote. Uh, voting is compulsory. Uh, it's easy to get re- to stay on the voting rolls there. One country on this planet where it's not easy to vote is the United States. Uh, since 2016, there have been all of these laws that have passed at the state level that go into great litigious detail about who can be registered to vote and what they need to be registered to vote. One such state that has passed a law around this is New Hampshire. And I think what they've tried to do is make it harder for uh, students to register to vote. And this is going to be something that plays out across the country. Wisconsin recently had 200,000 voters, um, uh, 200,000 voters dumped off the rolls. And then, uh, and then from there, uh, we had, uh, you know, Florida recently passed a amendment to its state constitution to restore voting rights to a million plus people who were formerly felons. When you're a felon in this country, you typically lose the right to vote for life. The voters uh, in Florida voted to like restore that. And then the state legislature came in and said, no, you can't get this right back until you pay all your outstanding debts mm-hmm. to the court. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think really the most untalked about factor when it comes to turnout, both in these primaries and heading into the general election is uh, a lot of these voter registration laws. So, be if you're if you're uh, a political nerd in Australia, I would uh, would brush up on that and and sort of really um, think about how fortunate you are to have a uh, you know very open and painless relatively to us at least uh voting experience in your country we literally could do a whole podcast on voter suppression laws in the united states and maybe that's something we can save for the downtime between the uh the primary season and the start of the general one little you paint a very um depressing picture there sam thank you one thing that well sorry it's just uh real like it's friday man honestly one thing that may keep... Not for me. <laughs> that is true. Uh, it will be eventually. One thing that... No, do- wonder I, no wonder I'm so bitter. Man, let me get my question out. One thing that uh, may be of interest or a bit more of a positive uh, little tidbit is that, um, which doesn't really get much media, but there is a primary going on right now 
for the selection for the uh, GOP's nomination. But there is someone still in the race running against Donald Trump. 10,000 Republicans turned out in the cold on Tuesday night to vote against Donald Trump in the Republican primary. I think this is interesting because Hillary Clinton won New Hampshire by an absolute handful of votes in 2016 against Donald Trump. If there are 10,000 Republicans that are prepared to turn out and vote in a state that, uh, sorry, in a, in a primary race that really doesn't matter because the person running against Donald Trump is not going to win, uh, what will those 10,000 Republicans do in the general? Will they come and vote for the Democratic candidate? I don't think they're going to come and vote for Donald Trump. Will they stay home? And in a race that's so tight... They won't vote for Bernie Sanders, I'll tell you that. But hey, let's talk about uh, percentages and not absolute numbers here. So uh, if we're going to talk about absolute numbers, 10,000 voters coming out in the Republican primary and voting against Donald Trump is encouraging. Uh, but if I'm Donald Trump, I also see that I got a record number of voters in a primary for me, which is 100,000. Uh, typically, um, you know, the, the incumbent president goes through the primaries as a mere formality. And the Trump campaign, look, for as repugnant as he is, uh, he's, he's got some uh, – smart people working for him and uh they were able to their credit to get a lot of people to turn out and vote for him and something that is basically for show so you know i'd be looking at it more on a percentage basis and less on an absolute basis true and you're trying to kill my buzz here man but but i will say i'm sorry look it's not friday for me. <laughs> but but i will say yes that is true and there are other factors in that we are not actually having a proper primary race for the Republican nomination. So comparing it to previous years is worth something. Well, you're, you're, you're comparing but, uh, it to, to 2012 when Obama was going through this process and Donald Trump absolutely smashed him uh, in comparison in, in New Hampshire. How do you mean? So let's just look up the vote total in the New Hampshire primary in 2012 for Barack Obama. Uh, so you're saying so when Barack Obama ran in an uncontested, or essentially uncontested, but that would have been uncontested, right? That nobody even nominated against Obama, not even some crackpot from New Hampshire that could get their name on the ballot. And so Obama wasn't actually running against anyone. There actually is someone running against Donald been, Trump. Yeah, exactly. But he only got there were only you only got forty nine thousand votes. Why would you bother? Yeah, wh- exactly. Why would you bother? And Donald Trump got over a hundred thousand. But I think he bothered. So, yeah. He went and had a rally in New Hampshire the day of the. For sure, and he he had to do that. But what I'm saying is, uh, you know, ten thousand. Versus 100,000. I'll take your point. Yeah, yeah. I get yeah. you. Let's quickly uh, turn to uh, the next two, Nevada and South Carolina, before we wrap up. Um, I couldn't find any polls that have come out uh, for either of those two states. I have. Thank you. Since uh, New Hampshire. Always prepared. You're a good man. Talk to me. What are they saying right now? So 
look, I mean, within Nevada, Biden, I guess, still has some, oh, well, on an average basis, Biden is pretty strong. Uh, when I look, all right, so look, um, yeah, Biden is, is looking good in Nevada uh, with 21%. Sanders, 17.5%. Warren is sticking in there, which I think is interesting because uh, Nevada is a very strong uh, labor union state. Mm. Uh, there's obviously a strong tie between um, uh labor and the democratic party, particularly among, uh, candidates who sort of champion themselves, uh, or style themselves as champions of the working class. Uh, so Elizabeth Warren is doing well there. Uh, however, uh, with 11%, uh, as their average, but, um, we've seen some of these polls recently and, you know, Biden is always sort of like at the top, but has definitely been fading. Um, I'm really interested to see what's going to happen in Nevada with Michael Bloomberg. How does his money impact things? You know, what I'd be curious about there is, um, is this sort of like a last ditch? It can, can Warren muster performance there that allows her to limp on to Super Tuesday. Uh, what, you know, Pete's not polling terribly well there. Uh, at seven percent compared to the leader, which is uh, which you know is Sanders at around eighteen or twenty percent, can Pete sort of use his organization to squeeze out enough delegates to stay at the top? And uh, I'd be looking sort of at South Carolina. Does Biden have a shot there? You know, does he does he pull this out? And then Tom Steyer has been dumping money into that state. He's the other billionaire. He's only worth $1 billion. <laughs> you can think about that. Uh, Michael Bloomberg is worth 60 times what Tom Steyer is worth. And Steyer has a, a, like a billion and a half dollars. You know what's also crazy? Tom Steyer has spent like $200 million on his campaign. He spent almost 20% of his like wealth on trying to become president. I don't, do you know what that money could buy on like voter registration, down ballot races, but trying to get people fucking healthcare. Like, I don't know, man. It's bizarre. And it also shows you uh, if I ever, whenever I'm having arguments with folks, uh, certainly back in the days when I worked for the party about the return on investment in putting money into things like digital or field, uh, as opposed to putting money into TV ads, I'll just say, look at Tom Steyer. He's dumped twenty million I mean, on TV advertising, and he hasn't won one place delegate. Now, what, what, what? You know, I think he thinks he might be like Secretary of the Treasury if someone wins. But then, dude, you just like dump twenty percent of your own wealth to be Secretary of the Treasury, and you could like buy a lot of people college education. I wouldn't make him Secretary of the Treasury because I don't think I could trust him with your money. Well, yeah. Based on the way that he spends his own money. Um, So predictions for Nevada. Who have you got? Fuck, man. You're going to hate me because I'm not really... Look, I think Bernie's going to win. 
if I had to say it, Bernie's going to win the caucus. Uh, I'm interested to see uh, whether or not Warren can muster uh, a good finish. I don't necessarily think Amy Klobuchar is going to is going to you know factor in there just because uh, I don't know that she sort of has a political base there. Uh, she opened then, up some field uh, offices this week, but probably a little too late. But yeah, I take your point. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, Joe Biden, I think, is kind of interesting because he's he was looking. There's this really powerful union uh, within Nevada called the Culinary Workers. Uh, for the first time, and you know, I think recent memory, they declined to endorse a candidate, um, and Biden was really counting on that. And so, look, if he comes in outside the top three, he's out. He's gone, I think. I mean, he can win South Carolina and, you know, but he, if he wins South Carolina and comes in outside the top three, it's over for him. Yeah. Um, now, with regard to South Carolina, the two storylines I'm looking at there are does Bernie – clean up in that state? Can he really like string together an impressive victory of five to 10 points in Nevada, five to 10 points in South Carolina? If he does that, then I think you need to start seeing him as a front runner more seriously. Um, And then I'm looking at what performance does Pete have in South Carolina specifically? Uh, I know that, um, South Carolina has the most delegates at stake of any of the first four states. It also has the highest proportion of African-American voters in the state. To what extent can Pete walk away with some delegates and to what extent can he, uh, you know, show that he is able to make inroads with African-American voters. In our last conversation, I used the, um, the term sort of like validating experience or validating election. Bernie needs a validating election, not for like supporters or anything, but for the media. People really need to sort of see him overperform. Uh, and Pete needs a validating experience coming out of South Carolina, showing that he's able to connect uh, outside with voters outside of uh, two very predominantly white states. Mm. It will be fascinating. And I actually think there's going to be so many twists and turns over those two particular races, uh, Nevada and South Carolina, and we'll watch with bated breath. We uh, will also, don't forget to uh, follow Dunn Street on Instagram. We're going to put up some more polls um, for, the, for the viewers at home. We want to find out what your thoughts are on who's going to win Nevada, who's going to win South Carolina. Um, it's been very interesting, but uh, I actually don't have the numbers with me in front now, but there's no point, because it basically everyone said that they thought that Bernie was going to win New Hampshire, and you were right. It shows you that the listeners of Socially Democratic are very smart, tuned-in people when it comes to democratic politics. Sam, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Loved talking to you today once again, and uh, hopefully Thank we'll, you. we'll get you back on after South Carolina. We'll give you a bit of a break. Sounds good. Sounds good. Maybe if we throw this up on Patreon in the meantime, we can raise enough money to fly me over to Australia. Stuff that. Fly, fly, fly me over to America. I'd rather do that. <laughs> you were just here. I know. Anyway, 
right. Great talking to you, Thanks. and uh, have a great weekend, and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you.